Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, good evening, uh, everyone, and welcome to our our tenth and final uh, session of this series, Theologies of Transformation and Action for Justice. Uh, it's hard to believe that we started this uh, a year ago, um, mm -hmm. but thank you for to all of you who have uh, been along for the journey. Um, the, if, for those of you who may not be familiar, um, Interfaith Action has 10 interfaith principles that guide our witness and our work around the three thematic areas of common home, common good, and common life. And we believe that these conversations around faith and action are dynamic rather than static, and that each faith tradition has gifts to offer for this collective action. Uh, thank you to all those who did uh, give a reflection during the series from uh, faith traditions across uh, Southwest Michigan. Uh, in the month of December, uh, the Right Reverend Prince Singh, who is the Bishop Provisional of the Episcopal Diocese of Eastern and Western Michigan, gave a reflection on uh, rejecting racism and systemic exclusion. Uh, that was a wonderful and important conversation that you can find uh, on our YouTube page or on Apple Podcasts. Uh, but tonight, uh, I think it's very fitting that our 10th our and final session is uh, we're having a reflection by one of the framers of these 10 interfaith principles, and that's uh, Dr. Clark Gilpin, uh, who is uh, the lead advisor for faith framing here at Interfaith Action, and the Margaret Burton Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where he served as dean from 1990 to 2000. Uh, he lives in Stevensville at the moment and attends the Berrien Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, where he and his wife, Nancy, co-chair the Social Justice Committee. So uh, what we are talking about tonight uh, is this 10th principle. So I'm going to hand it over to Clark right after I... Uh, hmm. There we go. Can you all see that? Principle 10, our faith traditions uphold the common good as grounded in solidarity with the poor and the vulnerable. Alleviation of poverty, homelessness, and hunger are essential causes for people of faith. This commitment requires us to promote basic standards of living and to confront excesses of capitalism and growing wealth divides. And here to unpack that, Dr. Clark Gilpin. Thank you, Clark. And Thank I you, Stephen. Interfaith Action's 10th principle raises a crucial set of policy issues, which we may certainly want to pursue in our discussion. But I want to begin the conversation by focusing on the first seven words of this principle. Our faith traditions uphold the common good. I want to ask the question, do faith traditions have distinctive contributions to make to public understanding of the common good? Is there something that religions offer to uh, public discussion that might otherwise be missed, overlooked, misunderstood? Across millennia, the idea of covenant has played an indispensable role in scripture, American history, and the ethical reflections 
of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It is typically portrayed a divine design manifesting itself in two forms, as promise and as dream. So my comments this evening explore the covenant as promise from the perspective of the 20th century American Protestant theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr, and interpret the idea of covenant as dream articulated by Martin Luther King Jr. So to begin with this notion of the covenant as divine promise. In 1954, Niebuhr published an evocative essay entitled, The Idea of Covenant and American Democracy. Niebuhr began by observing that we frequently use a single word or a single metaphor to suggest that there is a close correspondence among ideas that persons hold about themselves, about society, and about the universe. This inter and interactive correspondence means, as Niebuhr says, that human efforts at self-control, ethics, at social construction, politics, and their attitudes toward their ultimate environment, religion, are in consequence influenced by similar ideas. One of the most influential patterns of understanding and action since the formative epic of American society, according to Niebuhr, was the covenantal interpretation of the self, the society, and the ultimate environment. When viewed as interconnected covenants, he writes, the world is a peculiar kind of society in which all parts are bound to each other by promises. In this ultimate society, persons, he writes, are invited and ultimately required to achieve the maturity of full citizenship, engaging by promise to maintain and support a commonwealth they did not create but in whose administration they are privileged to participate. Carry on with his uh, writing. In the covenant conception, the essence of freedom does not lie in the liberty of choice among goods, but the essence of freedom lies in the ability to commit oneself for the future to a cause and in the terrible liberty of being able to become a breaker of the promise, a traitor to the cause. The integrity of the self then arises from the capacity to commit yourself to human society and the ultimate wholeness of all that is. The moral requirement and ability of promise keeping, Heber asserted, is central to human existence. The moral requirement and ability of promise keeping is central to human existence. Building on the idea that promise keeping is central to human existence, Niebuhr raised a series of questions that I think have a continuing urgent relevance for church and society. Let me read these questions. 
Can our common life endure without the presence of the conviction that we live in a world that has the moral structure of a covenant and without the presence in it of men who have achieved responsible citizenship by exercising the kind of freedom that appears in their taking upon themselves the obligations of unlimited loyalty, unlimited loyalty under God to principles of truth-telling, of justice, of loyalty to one another, of indissoluble union. Does freedom of religion presuppose the presence of men in a sense, in men of, a sense of responsibility to a cause that goes beyond all limited causes and their explicit loyalty to a community of faithfulness that is eternal and inclusive? Is freedom of speech a right that could have been maintained in a society where there was no prior implicit and unlimited promise among the members that they would be loyal to truth as they saw it and not bear false witness against their neighbor? The idea of covenant then identified the essence of personal freedom with the sense of responsibility to a cause that goes beyond all limited causes and the acceptance of explicit loyalty to a community of faithfulness that is eternal and inclusive. Dream. <laughs> Martin Luther King, in a famous speech at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, is most frequently remembered for its repeated affirmation, I have a dream. It is a dream, King declared, deeply rooted in the American dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yet, it is crucial to remember that King began his speech not with a dream, but with the nation's broken promise. The promise, he writes, or said, that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable right of life, liberty, and the Thank pursuit you. of happiness. Has focused on it was obvious, King declared, that America had defaulted on this promissory note. Hence, the fierce urgency of now had pro propelled King to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where he saluted those present with him who were, as he said, the veterans of creative suffering, but who must nonetheless make the pledge that we shall always march ahead, we cannot turn back. Now is the time to work together, pray together, struggle together, and go to jail together to transform the nation to take it to its promise. The dream that King enunciated was not an experience disconnected from reality, 
the dream arose from a discord between the promise and the reality. And it arose from the collective decision that now is the time for an unswerving march ahead to fulfill that dream. Enduring commitment to the dream is a mark of the covenant's resilience. William J. Barber has recently developed this idea of dreaming as the ethical responsibility of person, church, and nation through his revitalization of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. In 2013, Reverend Barber mobilized a series of what he called mobile moral, excuse me, moral Mondays, 13 public uh, demonstrations at the North Carolina State Capitol in Raleigh to protest legislative assaults on human rights, to healthcare, equal protection under the law, education, and economic justice. Pursuit of this agenda, Barber argues, requires defining one's nature and one's calling, a philosophical and religious discipline that is particularly compelling when one is in, in crisis or facing seasons of challenge, as he says, or confronting threats that seek to take one's identity or redefine it. Barber proposes that the capacity to dream, borrowing from King here, is indispensable for defining one's call, calling to ethical public action. And he elaborates this idea through a poetic response to the question, what is life? Let me read. We must fight for, pray for, and ask God to grant us the gift of dreaming afresh and anew, dreaming God's dreams, dreaming, hoping, and delighting in the things of God, freshly poured out upon our hearts and minds like the morning dew, how we need it so. What is life? Is it to be lived or dreamed about? or both. The spirit brings the gift of dreaming into the now. What God has hoped becomes, even if at first just in our thoughts, a new reality. We begin to see and dream in the now, what God has always wanted since the beginning. God's dreams become our desire when the spirit is at work. Men may never understand, but this is what happened deep in the soul place of Sojourner Truth. Mary, Martin, Medgar, Malcolm, Harriet, Fanny Lou, and Mandela. And so it seems our dreams determine our living and we live because of our dreams. Both Martin Luther King and William Barber remind us that as members of this community of faithfulness, that we live in the now, that pursuit of the dream requires commitment and decision on behalf of the dreamed for future. But Barber offers a distinctive focus on the relation between the fierce urgency of now and the dream to which we are committed. 
At each pivotal moment in history, God's dreams, he says, are freshly poured out upon our hearts and minds. The dreams represent what God has always wanted since the beginning, but now they are experienced by Sojourner Truth, by Martin Luther King Jr., by Nelson Mandela, and by us. When what God has hoped becomes, even at, if at first just in our thoughts, a new reality. We dream imaginatively and boldly act together to live out God's dreams in our present. I think uh, it's obvious enough that this idea of covenant, of mutual responsibility and accountability is, what's the right word, deeply absent in American society today. Robert Bella, many years ago, wrote a, a famous book entitled The Broken Covenant, in which he said, uh, this is in 1975, that our sense of individual freedom had broken free from that larger sense of covenantal responsibility. And it strikes me that this religious concept of covenant in its dimensions of the ability to promise oneself to one another and of dreaming in the sense of collectively imagining a future uh, are two things that religion can instill over time in its communities and that uh, through them it can communicate to the wider society which seems to have lost in my mind in my judgment that sense of mutual accountability that the faith notion of covenant has long across millennia instilled. So I'm ready to go uh, on whatever you want to talk about, but uh, including how would this apply to certain concrete policy questions or more generally the question, does religion have anything fresh to say that this nation needs to think about and is not thinking about. I only uh, want 10 minutes you. over, Stephen, that's good. <laughs> Excellent, plenty of time, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Clark. Uh, so much in there. Um, it's, uh, I, I'm still going over a lot of it in my head. Um, so I'll, I'll open it to the floor as usual. Um, we didn't, oh yeah, sorry, I missed you, Clark. I thought maybe you dropped off. Um, any any uh, thoughts or questions uh, that were evoked by this uh, very wonderful reflection? This is Paul. Uh, you hear a lot about American exceptionalism and I was here that American exceptionalism is, it's not a birthright, it has to be earned every generation. Same thing with freedom and with the, the last events in the last election and all the things that have come come forth, it seems that, that we're going to have to 
again, once again, re-earn our freedom or reinitiate the discussion. And, and faith can be very important in, in trying to replace the broken covenants, whether it be with indigenous people or the African-Americans or whatever, with true covenants that we stand behind uh, or uh, you know, whatever future directions this country takes, we're going to have to re-earn our exceptionalism and re-earn our freedom. I, I, I like that word re-earn, Paul. I think that's right. Um, I, I, I guess I would add to it a phrase maybe like re-envision for a new time. Um, on the one hand, yes, we want to we want to re-earn what we initially promised one another. We want to uh, re-enter uh, that sense of accountability to one another. I think you're exactly right. Uh, the other part of it, and one of the things I like about William Barber's reflections, is that he recognizes that back in the 19th century, when Sojourner Truth was imagining what the promise was, she saw it in her now. <laughs> and like her, uh, or a hundred years later, like Martin Luther King, we need to uh, imagine what that promise, that dream is in our time. So it's a matter of re-earning and renewing and also re-envisioning uh, that, that we're talking about. And I think, um, I think the faith traditions are gonna to need to take a leadership role in this because uh, politically, we seem to have lost uh, for the moment at least the capacity for the sort of dialogue and mutual trust that covenant requires. Clark, thank you um, for those wise words. Every time I listen to you speak about anything, I always learn something and I appreciate it. One of the things that has been very heartening to me uh, lately, very lately, um, is the leadership role that faith traditions, including interfaith action, but also the Episcopal Diocese of Michigan and the United Methodist General Organization in Michigan, the leadership role that all those faith traditions are taking to reduce gun violence. Mm -hmm. That's very heartening. Um, and I think we need more of that around a lot of issues. Yeah. Yes, right, right. And, and in some ways, oh, excuse me, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Clark. Go ahead. No, you know, please. I, I'm, okay. I, I've said enough. And when I think about um, that, uh, Larry, and, um, you know, back in the time of Martin Luther King and now William Barber, um, it has been faith traditions that have played a um, significant or a material role in affecting the kind of change uh, that they were able to accomplish. Um, and one of my, um, and Sid knows this and probably Stephen too, one of my um, recent 
and by recent, I mean the last, um, I was able to sort of restart my um, activism and advocacy again around 2020 uh, after an absence of about six years. And one of the differences that I noticed was the absence of callers, as I say. And, um, um, and that has been one of the reasons that I have recommitted to the institutional church in terms of the Episcopal church uh, because of their uh, commitment and promise in terms of social justice. Uh, and Clark, I have been really fascinated. I've been for the past probably at least 12 months and maybe longer. Um, I've been grappling with the word covenant. Hmm. Um, in terms of um, uh, the difference between that and contract, the difference between that and promise, uh, and um, in dealing with that in my particular circumstance within the Episcopal Church, um, even uh, as they say, cradle Episcopalians, um, really... Um, become a bit uncomfortable around the word covenant. Mm -hmm. um, even though it 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 flows throughout their Episcopal life, that word, and uh, the promises they make. I love this idea uh, that you have talked about tonight in terms of um, um, covenant and dreaming and living our dreams. Um, that really is so moving to me and so rich in terms of um, how it can um, um, affect the way we live and deal with the issues that we're confronting today and why behavior must change and why we must take um, a different approach. And I, whoever said it in terms of... Um, I have no, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I have no confidence that it will ever happen in the public arena. And um, if it's going to happen at all, it's going to have to be led by faith leaders who are brave and uh, who put themselves out there. And that's what Larry's talking about in terms of the action that Interfaith has taken um, uh, within gun violence, Michigan. And beginning that was also obvious um, over the past year in terms of voting rights. And um, um, because in my mind, at the end of the day, everything depends on voting rights. Um, we'll probably be as effective as we possibly can be now that the legislature in Michigan has turned blue. Um, so, uh, which, I'm thrilled by in terms of the support that's going to give to in gun violence, Michigan. So sorry to get wound up on this, but you really spoke to my heart and thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think in, in an in a interesting way, the current rhetoric around guns is a classic instance of what happens when you completely individualize right. the idea of freedom. Excellent. And absolutely, uh, this whole group of thinkers, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, Martin Luther King, William Barber, come at it 
in exactly the opposite direction, uh, that a freedom is in fact the ability to uh, commit yourself to a larger reality. The old covenant theologians that, that I typically read, 16th, 17th century, um, actually always insisted on beginning this idea of the promise uh, with the promises of God. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they love to talk about Noah and the rainbow. <laughs> right. uh, that these promises are in some ways built into the created world we experience. And unless our individual promises, our individual acts of freedom align with those primordial promises, you might say, uh, we are on completely the wrong track. Now, how to, how to couch that sort of vision of the placement of human freedom within the order of the world, the environment, uh, I think is a, is a huge rhetorical and intellectual challenge today. But uh, that sense that we are accountable not only to our immediate friends and family, but to something that is far larger than anything we can even imagine is, uh, I think, uh, a crucial feature of uh, religious reflections on covenant, promise, dream that, uh, that are, is largely absent from the public discussion. And um, I'm trying to figure out how to reinvent that to find the uh, people with the uh, ability to communicate about that in the public sphere. Uh, yes, it's, yep. it's a challenge. And collective action like the Methodists, the Episcopalians uh, are engaged in right now collective action is going to be key. It is. Even if we limit ourselves, Clark, to the individual frame, if, if our nation is dedicated to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, if you just take life, <laughs> how can we not do something about gun violence? How can yeah. we not do something about climate change, things that impact every individual's life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I want to give credit to, uh, or at least recognize the work of Interfaith Action with Sid's leadership and Stephen's leadership, because we are, I mean, we have been, I mean, it's all, at least what attracted me to Interfaith was this idea of the common good, and the common home and the common life. Mm-hmm. And um, this journey that we embarked on in terms of these faith principles and the dedication to um, um, uh, the promises of our faith and including uh, how we care for creation. So I, I mean, that was really what pulled me toward interfaith action. So thank you, Sid and Stephen. Well, I'm glad um, that we, 
you know, both Larry and Bobby have touched on climate change and something that I have been thinking about um, with this idea of covenant, which you described in part uh, as having mutual responsibility and accountability. Um, another way that I'm thinking about that in terms of our environment or creation is our interconnectedness and our interdependence, um, which isn't just some sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's just a reality. We, we are connected, we are dependent, scientists would say that, uh, as well as anyone else. Um, and and uh, this past week, uh, watching the, the Letter documentary, which is uh, based off of Pope Francis uh, Laudato Si, which is also an inspiration for these faith principles, um, really brought out that sense of interconnectedness. So I'm glad we've linked this beyond humans. Uh, you know, this covenant, the, the covenant language seems to apply beyond um, just human beings, but all creatures, uh, uh, all of creation. So um, I guess within that framework, I would be curious to hear your thoughts, you know, transitioning from this covenant language of mutual responsibility and accountability to um, action within that framework. Um, yeah, I'm curious to get any, any thoughts that you had on what kind of action comes out of a, a moral framework like covenant. Mm -hmm. Well, um... Let me try two things. Um, I think one is that um, the part of the uh, part of the power of this set of ideas is that um, it draws each individual person, each sub community within a larger society into uh, a larger pattern of meaning. So part of what uh, energizes the language of covenant is that um, each individual is transformed from being uh, a sort of fragmentary moment of infinitesimally small reality into part of a transcending whole. And your contribution may be modest in the grand scheme of things, but it renders what you do part of a pattern of movement. Martin Luther King's uh, wonderful old phrase, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So part of what we're talking about here is that uh, covenant is not only crucial to the society, but it is crucial to the individual sense of self, meaning, and purpose that each of us hopes to have as we live our lives. Um, and I, I then secondly, I think that uh, this takes on a, a, diff a challenging, interesting 
dimension, when you extend that, uh, that sense of, of the moral universe uh, to the universe as a whole <laughs> and say, uh, I'm part of something that is more than human. Uh, it is uh, the phrase I used earlier, a participation in, a commitment to, a sense of meaning that derives from the wholeness of all that is. And so uh, environmentalism is uh, partly about monarch butterflies and uh, many important species beyond ourselves. But even there, this covenant idea says that by promising yourself to that wholeness, you receive a sense of your own wholeness. And this covenantal pattern of mutual commitment extends, as God tried to explain to Noah, all, all the way out, all the way out. Clark, I've, I've been reflecting a, a bit more on, on covenant, and it seems at, at least the Old Testament origins of covenant mm -hmm. are framed not about God and me, but about God and us, and yes. us is always writ large. Mm -hmm. it, us is people like me, but people quite different from me, the stranger, the alien, et cetera. So, uh, so that kind of forces us into the common good construct. Absolutely. And then I'm thinking of Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, that often quoted statement, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So again, it's, it's a, a different language being used for a covenant around the common good. So uh, if, if I receive justice, but somebody, somebody else receives injustice, my commitment is beyond myself. Mm -hmm. Is this part of kind of the new moral conversation in the public square that we as people of faith need to be echoing. That's my feeling, Sid, uh, that uh, really the, uh, the time for the church, for the synagogue, for the mosque to step forward and enunciate different versions of this vision uh, in compelling ways is with us. <laughs> the fierce urgency of now, uh, I would say, is what I'm feeling. Uh, and I say that because um, I, I pick up a copy of the New Yorker or uh, read a newspaper and journalists 
even journalists I admire immensely have tended to identify religion in America today with a kind of uh, ethnocentric nationalism mm -hmm. that in fact is spending most of its time uh, figuring out how to exclude people, mm -hmm. not how to uh, not how to recognize them as fellow members of the covenant. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of religious nationalist voice, um, need, we, need, we need to hear the alternative in our society. The alternative that uh, interfaith action and, and uh, others are, are trying to, to articulate in which uh, we really get a, a clearer sense of, of, of the common good <laughs> and the fact that, that without everyone's capacity to participate in that common life, each one of us is diminished. Uh, the, so that this, this fear of the other, in fact, is a deterioration of the self, a threat to yourself when you are hostile toward the other. Uh, I mean, uh, we really are, in other words, need to flip over on its head the kind of common rhetoric of our time. Well, that's a powerful uh, frame, uh, the, the paradox that the person or persons different from us are essential to our own development and transformation. They add rather than subtract. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that as I am listening to this, that I feel in a sense that we've come full circle because I think we began this series talking about Fratelli Tutti yeah, and um, about La Datosi. And here we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah in fact, uh, one of the things that uh, I at least received from Stephen earlier, maybe at the end of December, beginning of this month, um, he actually cites Fratelli Tutti. Um, and uh, he was struck by uh, paragraph 116, uh, the special solidarity that exists among those who are poor and suffering. Solidarity is a word that is not always well received in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, it means thinking and acting in terms of community, says Fratelli Tutti. And uh, I guess the covenant idea says that that community is a universal community. Right. The philosopher Josiah Royce a uh, century ago called the beloved community. community. Yeah. I think that Reverend Barber following 
Dr. King, has an important idea for how to put some of these ideas into action. So the movement he's leading is, is not poor African-American campaign. That's right, it's the poor, poor people's, people's campaign and very deliberately reaching out mm -hmm. to people of other ethnicities and trying to be as inclusive as possible. I think that's an important way Absolutely. of going about uh, McKee's book, uh, The Sum of Us. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I've got a copy of around here somewhere, is wonderful on this point. Yeah. And she opens, you may, if you've read the book, you may know she opens with the illustration that uh, in the mid 20th century, a number of municipalities were willing to close their public swimming pools entirely. Yep. Yep. rather than let them be integrated and <laughs> the absurdity of that she uh she really does a wonderful job with uh no question yeah i i, I and, uh, it, as you were saying that uh, struck me as to some communities which have uh defunded their public libraries yes because of the inclusion of certain books so it it may be a contemporary manifestation yeah. of uh, McGee's uh, swimming pool example. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting uh, that Barber now is focusing efforts at Yale Divinity on, on the topic of public theology and public policy. That's right. Yeah, I, uh, that's an important point. I'm glad you reminded me of that. Uh, Yale Divinity School has created a new uh, new center for uh, the study of public theology and public policy. And uh, Reverend Barber has agreed to become their first director. So wow. he'll be, uh, I'm not sure what kind of connection he's gonna maintain to his church in Greensboro, North Carolina, but uh, a center of his activity is going to become uh, Yale Divinity School, and that's a, a wonderful platform for the kind of discussion uh, that, that, as many of you have said, we need to begin. Reverend Barber is such an inspiring person in so many ways. Sandy and I had the honor of hearing him talk at a conference a couple of years ago. He was supposed to talk for 45 minutes and every moment of those 45 minutes, it was very clear that he was in pain from his illness, ankylosing spondylitis, which is a painful condition. And he talked for an hour and a half. And wow. he was yeah. incredible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, very, very powerful personality. I really, He's a member of the denomination I grew up in, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And uh, so I've had a, a chance to hear him and uh, get regular notices about his work. And yeah, it's... Well, um, I, speaking of how these theologies of transformation lead to actions for justice, um, before I let you all go, I have a couple things uh, that I wanted to share. Um, 
number one um, is, is, is an invitation to take action uh, in this new year of 2023. Um, Interfaith Action has developed a, uh, a set of policy targets for, for this year around environment, uh, migration, diversity, inclusion, and equity, gun safety, and protection of democracy. Uh, and under these five areas, we have a very specific uh, list of, uh, of, of targets. So if, if any of these interest you, uh, if you'd like to, to take action uh, with us, we invite you to do so. You can contact uh, myself, uh, Vicki Schroeder, my co-director, or, um, or use the, the contact information on our website. Um, so that's an invitation for you on the Zoom call, uh, as well as those who may see this at a later point. Um, and the last thing I wanted to share was um, that there's going to be a program uh, tomorrow uh, between Interfaith Action uh, along with Berrien County Alpact um, for co-hosting a presentation on the state of Michigan, uh, which has identified vulnerable communities um, mm -hmm. using a new um, screening tool. So um, you are all invited uh, to join tomorrow morning 9.45 to 11 a.m. on Zoom, um, when the director of Southwest Michigan Planning Commission will provide an overview of how the state is engaged in mapping of environmental justice in Michigan. Provided the Zoom link there. Um, if, you, if anyone needs that link, feel free to reach out. Um, but um, that's what's uh, coming up next, literally tomorrow. So um, all are invited. Um, but. Again, thank you so much, Clark, for this incredibly rich discussion. Uh, I had no idea you were going to go the route of covenant, uh, dream, and, and promise. So thank you so much for these. I, I think what we've seen is really rich concepts that we continue to talk about for, for quite a while and we'll be mulling over. So thank you for rounding out this series and we'll see you all soon. Uh, there are several programs in the work, but um, be in right. touch. Thank you, Stephen. Bye. Bye. Bye.